Uh, we've, been, uh, looking at, uh, we've been looking at Isaiah 53 and James 2 about faith and works and looking after widows and orphans and so on. But before we do that, because I felt this, I believe that God is wanting to change the culture in this church. And uh, if you were to say what the culture was, what would you say we are known for? Love. Community. Worship. 80% of the people that I meet with are attracted because we do community so well, we're so friendly, or you are at least, I don't know about me, but you guys are really friendly. I, I can't even get past the front row to say hi because there's so many friendly people around. Um, um, but in worship, I mean, it's incredible. Didn't you sense the presence of God? We've got, these guys are worshipers. They're not musicians. They are worshipers, and that's what makes the difference. The difference between a, a musician playing a worship song and a worshiper, you know straight away. And so we are really, really well known for those, and we don't want to lose those values. But if we, have our, if we can have our, um, our mission statement is to know Jesus and to make him known. Really what Tyron was saying in that, in that um, video there. But our mandate is to be a gathering, healing, training, and sending church. And I've been through this a few times, but what we want to do is we want to gather people here. We want to gather the lost, the, the lonely, the healthy, the sick, uh, the happy, the sad people. We want this to be a people where they feel, feel welcome, no matter where they are and what type, place of the night. We want to see them healed. Often we come into the church, and when I got saved, there's a lot of baggage that I needed to deal with in my life, and it, took a, it was a process, and it's in a church that loved us and cared for us. We want to see people healed physically, spiritually, and emotionally as part of our salvation, sozo, that will be saved physically, spiritually, emotionally, and, uh, and then we want to see them sent into the neighbors and into the nations, into the workplaces, to shine the light of God. That is simple. It's like a, you're on a conveyor belt. So I don't know where you are. And the, the other thing is that I felt God say is that we are moving from being a cruise ship to a battleship. Changing culture, moving from a cruise ship to a battleship. What does that mean? Well, on a cruise ship, when you sit by the pool with your uh, non-alcoholic beverage, wink, wink, um, <laughs> with the umbrellas in it, and when you sit by that pool and the captain of the ship walks past, and I've been there, he's so happy to see you enjoying yourself. He's got a big smile. I say, how's it going? Do you like the ship? Yeah. But if you did that on a battleship, <laughs> got up there with your little martini with its umbrella, and was sitting on the top of the aircraft carrier, what do you think the captain of that ship would do? He'd throw you off the back. You see, it's a difference. There's a difference. And I think that God is wanting us. We're, we're maturing as a church, and God wants us to grow and become effective in this season we're going into. Not just to fill that building, which is four times the size of that, this, but to be effective in the kingdom of God. And you see... Sometimes we mix up church with kingdom. The church is not the kingdom. If the church was the kingdom, all of the churches would still be here that were planted by Paul. 
because the kingdom never fails and it's always advances. The church is the vehicle through which the kingdom advances. The church is the vehicle. And the church is not a building. Thank the good Lord. Because look what we're meeting in. The church is people. We don't come to church. We are the church. And we gather together, as, as, as Mark showed us there. And so the, the culture that I feel God is wanting us to improve on is the sending part, the going part, the opening up our hearts wherever we go. And it's very easy to dream of India and Asia and these wonderful places around the world. And I've been to many and many about mission work. But God says in Acts, uh, 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 when he's, um, when he's uh, in uh, Athens, speaking, and he's speaking about the unknown God and so on, and he says, but in that he says that God determines the act, exact time and space and place that people should live. He determines, you are not here by accident. We are not here by accident. So that through them, those people, they could get to know God, for in Him we live and move and have our being. So God determines where we are, and many of us, uh, in a sense, live like we had a bus shelter to the next best thing. We don't plant down roots. We're just like in this bus shelter. Well, I'll hang out here, and when the next bus comes up, hopefully it's one of those nice green buses uh, uh, that don't spew diesel anymore, and I'll get onto that bus. And uh, I get off and wait for the next bus. God does not. We are, God calls us a planting of the Lord to display His splendor. And um, we are not to be potted plants or pot plants. We are to be planted plants. Planted. In South Africa, potted plants are called pot plants. Sorry. <laughs> I only realized the implication when I got here. When we went to the, when my wife went to the nursery to buy a pot plant. Do you sell pot plants? True story. The lady said, no, we don't. So she said, but you're a nursery. Oh, you mean potted plants. Oh, okay. So we... <laughs> Last in translation, who saw that movie? Eh? And so, um, we're to be planted. You see, a potted plant is very easy to move around. But it has no roots. It's contained by that container. It can only go so big. And instead of growing into a big fruit tree, it becomes a bonsai tree. Beautiful to look at, but useless in a sense. So we need to find our space, and if it is at Oceanside, God will show you, but get planted here. Get behind the wheel and start carrying some weight in the body of Christ. Not waiting, well, let me check out this for three years and see if it works, and then I'll get on the next bus. In three years, if God has you that for that time, or one year, how much can you do for the kingdom? How much can you do for the kingdom in one week, two months, three months, four months, five months? We all have opportunities, and God has empowered us, and we're going to look about at that again today. We've got quite a few scriptures, and actually none of that was in my notes, so um, we're going to reset the clock. 
See, we've been looking at, we looked at Isaiah 58 and James 2 and the practical outworking of our faith. We saw that God is not in, interested in religious ritual, but in authentic relationship. We saw that in Isaiah 58, they were putting ashes on their heads and they were fasting and all of that. But God was not listening. God is into a relationship that is based on faith in Jesus Christ and expressed through love and good deeds. This relationship we have is a vertical and a horizontal one. It's amazing that Jesus died on a cross because our relationship looks like that. We have a vertical relationship like this with God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're down here. We're worshiping God here. But he also intends us to have a horizontal relationship with each other, to reach out. That's what Jesus came to do on the cross, to pay the price of sin for humanity. And as we grow in him, and as we were encouraged to do that in this relationship, it's pointless if we don't do anything with it. It's pointless. There has to be an outlet, because that food in your stomach, if it doesn't have an outlet, will poison you. And the poison of the church is religion where we turn from relationship to religion, we get into trouble. Now, religion in the greatest sense is an amazing thing. Christianity as a religion. Christianity, should I say. But that is not what Jesus died for. He died for us so that relationship, broken by sin, could be restored through Jesus Christ. So that, as Mark said in Hebrews 10, it was that we can enter the most holy of holies through a new and living way. Not through the blood of animals, but because of Jesus Christ, the curtain, and through His body, we can enter. We have access to the throne room of God. We have access to all the incorruptibly great power that is for us who believe. We have access. There is nothing that we do not have access to. But if we don't plug into it, and we don't use it, What's the point? And so that's what James, I believe, is speaking to in James chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace and keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Here we see, and we see this, that James was not questioning their faith in Jesus Christ. Because in, in James 1, in James 2 verse 1, he addresses them like I'm addressing you. If he was addressing Oceanside, and he addressed them like this, and he calls them, my brother's and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. And he goes into this thing. He is addressing a church like us. He could be addressing the North American church full of believers, but no outworking of that faith. And I've been thinking of this. There's so much out there. Uh, 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 like, as I said, Luther thought that, uh, called James the apostle of straw, because uh, he felt he was adding 
works to salvation, but he actually wasn't. He was speaking to believers. It says it in that book. And I don't argue with Luther when I get up there. I'm going to have to apologize maybe. But, um, but that's my, my take of this, is that he is speaking to believers and saying, guys, you're missing the plot, the purpose of this. The purpose of this is because it's our love and good deeds that create an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to move, to soften hearts, and for seed to go into good soil. Eternal seed. When we sow seed into hard ground, we know the channel. There's no pro- it's, it's going to bounce off. It's not going to take root. And often, those good deeds and that love for someone is a lifetime journey for you. Loving them, loving them, loving them, caring for them, loving them, loving them. On their deathbed, and I promise you, I have, as a pastor, been in palliative care. I've spent days uh, in palliative care with people, and I've personally led people to the Lord on their deathbed within minutes or hours of them dying. It's an incredible experience. But most of those people that I spoke to, even if it was 60 years or 70 years ago, had some kind of experience with Jesus Christ. One of them... Uh, were at a camp in Alberta in the middle of nowhere when there was a young boy telling me in his 70s or 80s or 90s, I can't remember. I asked him, and he said, yeah, you know, when I was nine, I went to this camp and I heard about Jesus. He said, but I never did anything with it. Do you think that camp guy thought, what the heck am I doing here? But he put seed in there. And I just came upon and watered that seed, and God made it grow. It is eternal. It is eternal. We cannot make seed grow, and we should not be digging up seeds in our garden every week to see if they're going to bear fruit. How many of you know that would be a dumb thing to do? You plant a tomato seed, and next week you say, I wonder where, where this is. You dig it up, and you put it back. You Oh, well, it, it's not going to grow anyway. Yeah, because we're messing with the seed. It's by faith. And good deeds that we soften people's hearts. You see, he was questioning the outworking of their faith. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, Paul too reminds us as believers to represent Christ well. That what we do gives credibility to what we say. Not what we say does not give credibility to what we do but what we do, what we do. It's very important. And Paul speaking here once again of salvation, verse 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a brand new creation that never existed. The old is gone and the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us to Christ, And now he said, now I want you to reconcile others to me. That God was reconciling the world uh, to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. This is a very, very sobering passage of Scripture. Imagine the privilege of being an ambassador of Canada. Would we act like hooligans? 
Will we go crazy? We're going to see the Queen of England or something? Would we embarrass the nation? We wouldn't do that. And we are ambassadors of the King of Glory. It's a high, high calling. We have this thing that we don't understand our identity of who we are in Christ. That there's no higher standing or calling in the universe outside of the Godhead than to be a co-heir with Christ or an heir of God. There's no higher standing. And we are ambassadors as co-heirs and heirs of God. We are ambassadors of Christ. Everything else is downhill. So I, my, my function here is to lead this church and to equip the church with the eldership, our function as eldership. But that's not who I am. That's what I do. And it's no different to our Sunday school teachers downstairs. It's no good addition to, to, to the people that serve and make the coffee and do all of that. It's no different to putting our chairs or worship leaders. We all have a function, and out of that, and, but we function out of a higher identity, which is as co-heirs. And if we understand that, we start going, well, if I, when I'm saved uh, and things go well, then maybe I'll become a deacon. And if I deek really well, maybe I'll become an elder. And maybe, wow, I'll get our apostolic team. If God has for that, be faithful in what you are, be faithful in the living, and he'll make a way. But my identity is not in my function. And if it is, I'm in trouble. It's in Jesus Christ. We are all equal in standing before Christ. I have no more power, no more authority than any of you. I just have a different function to fulfill. And when I stand before God and it scares the living daylights out of me, because it says James's teachers will be judged more harshly. So I'm finished my preach now because <laughs> <laughs> Be careful. I'm going to before the rapture or before I pass away, I'm going to join the sheep line. <laughs> Point somebody else as a leader. And two, okay, we are there for Christ's ambassadors. As though ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. You see, the world sees Jesus through the lenses of the church. The world is not necessarily mad with Jesus when they know who he is and what he's come to do. They're mad with the church. You ask him, are you okay? Yeah, I was this, and they did that, that church, that church, that church, that church, that church, that church, that church. And then you speak about Jesus, they've got the lenses of that church. They say, I don't want to know that dude. I don't be anything. I've got enough problems in my life than to go to a church where there's bickering and backbiting and all of these things going on. Why should I do that? Well, people leave churches. You see, there's a higher calling. We can never leave the church because we are the church. And number two, we have to come and be part of the solution. We have to come with a solution, not be part of the problem. 
not just walk away, but we need to understand when we go out there, and I, I have this cross on my neck, and, and you know, in the early days of the early church, they would never wear this because it was a sign of torture. But we can just wear that as a, as a charm in a sense. But it means something. It means something. And when we stick our hand up and say, I'm a Christian, do people say, I want to be like that dude? Hey, man. Or no ways. Sorry, I'm sounding a bit more like James today. I've read him too much. Paul writes this too. He wrote that there in Timothy 6, 17 to 19. These are strong words too. Paul understood the outworking of faith through works. Galatians 2, 8, 9, and 10, saved by grace, not by works, but created in Christ to do good works. It says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Where's our faith? You see how economies can come and go. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, because everything else is sinking sand. When the storms come, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them. These are strong words. Not, hey, guys, I've got this little suggestion. You know, if you feel like it, just do some good stuff. Just be rich in good deeds. You know, only if you, only if you want to. We don't want to put you out. No, command them, Timothy. This is the church in Ephesus. Command that church that I planted, that I spent three years building into it. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. We see this played out in an amazing way in 2 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9. These are the churches, the Macedonian churches that Paul planted. Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea. These churches. And we see Paul's love for the church of Philippi. And he writes that letter in, in Philippians 4. He says, when I was in need, you sent me help again and again. You helped me when I was in prison. You helped me when I was doing well. You helped me all the time. He loved that church. But it was a poor church. And we see that because he uses them as an example to this rich church in Corinth. If you read about the church in Corinth, it was a wealthy church. He's preparing an offering for the Jerusalem church, and he's asking the churches to give because the Jerusalem church was in turmoil and uh, in a terrible place because of a major famine. 
and they were in need. So on his third missionary journey, he planted these churches in the second, but on his third one, he's going around and he's saying, listen, I want to collect an offering for that church. So that's the context of this. And he's speaking to the church in, in Corinth because he had been there and they had said, listen, we would like to chip in and help. He's now writing to them and saying, I'm going to send Titus there and I want him to be, you to be prepared when he comes to receive the offering that you said you would give. Now go and read these two chapters. I'm going and So put your money where your mouth is. That's what he's saying. Yeah, don't say it. Do it. Sounds like James. And he says this. And now, brothers, we want you to know the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of severe pride, uh, uh, severe trials, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty. This wasn't just a poor church. This was a poor church. Riled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own. Next chapter, he says, nobody must give under compulsion. Nobody. We'll we'll look at that in the future. Nobody will. Sowing and reaping. But nobody must because God loves a cheerful giver. So it's not about compulsion here. They did it on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints, the saints in Jerusalem, saints that they had never seen, never met. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's word. So I urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring to completion this act of grace. Now I want to this giving, this act of grace. Just remember that. In this passage, right through, if you read it in this chapter, he mentions grace in the context of funds five or six times. This act of grace in your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you. People, the problem is, when we speak finances, it has been so, so, so mishandled by many so-called prosperity people, almost extorting money from people. And unfortunately for them, they will give a big account for that, and we've got to be careful how we handle this whole situation. But it's not under compulsion. Nobody in this church needs to give or tithe into Oceanside if they don't want to. It's amazing. This um, guy came to his pastor and he said, um, Pastor, uh, you've spoken tithing. And he says, I think a a tenth is too much. So I said, do you mind if I give a third? Pastor said, sure. (laughs) 
I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know, once again, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through you his poverty might become rich. My question today is what inspired these extremely poor Christians? Two, as verse three, we read, give as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. I believe it was an ongoing revelation of God's love, mercy, and grace. They were in love with Jesus. They loved him. You see, when we love people, we'll do anything for them. Interesting, to the church in Ephesus, where Paul commanded those rich to be rich in good deeds, when Jesus um, speaks to John in the book of Revelation, the thing he has against that church is not that they weren't meeting together, not that they had, didn't have sound doctrine, not that they had all the ticks crossed and who was false and who was not. People, you false, you right, you right, no, not me, you, that kind of, I want nothing to do with you. They had lost their first love. They had taken the focus of Jesus Christ and put it on their circumstances and put it on everybody else. Because when we're in love with Jesus, we want to please him. You see, we, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. I believe what he meant is fall in love with me and you will want to. Because I've tried to obey Jesus in my own strength. I've tried to obey the Ten Commandments for one hour. Broke a few. But when I love Jesus, when I fall, that's what grace is all about. They understood He's there. He's there for us. You see, they understood God's saving grace. That's the first thing. That God so loved the world. And what did that love cause him to do? Give. He gave his only begotten son. He could not give anything else. He could have created a new planet for us. He could have sent an angel. He could have wiped us out. But for some incomprehensible reason that I don't fully understand, He loved me. And He loved you. And He loves everybody on this planet, rich, poor, the, the biggest sinner, to the holiest saint. He loves them. And he wants a relationship with them. And we're the ones through the conduit of that for him. We're the representatives of Christ. And we, through our love and good deeds, create a place where they can begin to see Christ in us. He gave. God gave to them and they wanted to give to him.
He also understood God's sustaining grace. Just going to cut it down a bit here. Many outworkings of grace, common, common grace, God's grace to humanity. Where in Matthew 5 it says, He calls the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. But His sustaining grace, that's the grace that we come to and we get daily. We have got saving grace. If we don't have saving grace, we can't come into the Holy of Holies. But when we are there, Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore let us um, come to the throne of grace. And when we come to the throne of grace, it says there, can you just, the actual verse, it says this, that when we come to the throne of grace, it says you will receive mercy. So we come daily, God's sustaining us, and we, we've, we've got all this muck on us from the day. Things haven't gone well, and we're dirty, 4.16, and we're dirty, and we come to Him. And instead of God giving us what we deserve, which is judgment, He gives us what we don't deserve, which is mercy. And when He, it's like us working in a, in a, on a construction site or something, a diesel mechanic or something, and something like that, and I get home and full of mud and muck or whatever it is, noble jobs, hard jobs. Imagine if I ever said, will you have a shower? I said, no, I don't feel like it. And I got in bed with a greasy old overall, coverall or whatever it is. Be a bit crazy, eh? We'll have a shower. Dare say I sleep by myself, yeah. <laughs> but that's what this daily thing is. It's like a shower. It's like Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and I will make you clean. And I will put a new heart in you, and I will soften your heart, and I will, I will, I will, I will do it all. When we come daily into that first, God, I'm sorry, you know, I messed up on all of this. Don't worry, my boy. I've paid the price for it. Fall in love with me. Fall in love with Jesus. And that comes down and just washes it away. We go the next day. We get muddy again. I can't say, well, I had a shower yesterday. I don't need one today. If we are not spending time with God, it's not a ritual that we tick off. Get rid of that. Get rid of the rules. It's a higher law. It's the law of love. It's a law of relationship. And so we come daily, not because, oh, God's going to be angry with me, but because we want to find grace, receive mercy, to help us, it says, in our time of need for, just for the next day. We need it daily. And out of that, our hearts soften and we cleansed from the muck. John Piper said this, I'm thankful for God's saving grace in the past, but what I need now is the grace that will sustain me the next minute, the next hour, and the years until the end of my life. And there's God's provisional grace. We're going to finish with this. It's quite a long um, passage in Matthew 6. Matthew 5, it's, a, it's part of the 
Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's part of that. It starts with the Beatitudes and he goes on from there. In Matthew 5, he talks about let our light shine before men that they might see our good deeds and glorify God. And that's through our good deeds. He's the first one that mentioned deeds, not James. Jesus did. And, and then in the next chapter, so it it's, finishes in chapter 7. So it wasn't just a few little blessed are thys. It was a talk. It could have, they say, it could have taken a few days sitting on the hill with his friends. And nearing the end of the sermon, he says this of his talk. Matthew 6, 19 to 33. Do not, this is God speaking, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and dust, moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart is. The lamp, remember he told in Matthew 5, let your light so shine. And he says the lamp of the, uh, of the body is the eye. And if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. He's a jealous God. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you, you will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is money. You cannot serve God and money. Money, we are not to serve money. Money is to serve us. Money is not evil. The love of money is evil, but money is not evil. Money is used for good. When we do what the Macedonia church did, when we sow into the kingdom, it's not evil. It's currency that we use and we leverage for the kingdom. But we can't serve both. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. He says, now, what he's saying here, let me look after you. This is what he's trying to say here. Do not worry about your life or what you will eat or what you will drink nor your body, or what you will put on, is life not more than food, and body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than them? Church, I was thinking how many billions of birds are in the world, and how much food they must eat every day. I've got a little bird feeder, and it just goes I go to bucket fields, they smile because I love birds, so I've got bird feeders all over. And it's just, man, these birds are eating too much. Just a few in my yard I can't afford to feed. Every day, tons and tons and gazillions for every animal, every bird is fed by God. Bill Gates couldn't feed every bird or animal in this world for one day. And God just does it for his good pleasure. 
because he loves him and he loves us. Isn't that cool? Which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to your stature? So why worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed by it like these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is, is today, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, are you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry. Say, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your Henry Father knows what you need, that you need all things. Problem. We confuse needs with wants. I want that. God's not supplying it. Well, do you need it? Hey, God, I want that. Mark, do you need it? Mm, not really. But I want it. Okay. You know what I mean? We've got this mixed up. Nobody here in this city need go without food or clothing. And so we've got to be careful about this curse of comparison. God can bless, and I'm not into a poverty mentality. I love it when God blesses. But when we compare ourselves and we get disgruntled, and it's always comparison goes up and not down. We are not comparing ourselves with Haitians. Still trying to build their homes. We're comparing ourselves up. But when we work with the poor, when we look below us and use these things that we have, we automatically get an attitude of gratitude. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord God, for Canada. Thank you. Thank you, Lord God, I live in this nation. I don't worry about stuff. I'm not going to bed worrying about my meal. Thank you, God. And where that comes, it opens our heart. And that's all God wants us to do. But more than I'll just end on this. He says, don't worry about that, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All your needs will be met. James actually says, we're going through the book of James. Man, he's a hard hitter, man. I'm glad I wasn't in his church. He says this. You ask, but you don't receive, because when you get, you spend it on yourselves. This is not for condemnation's sake. This is for conviction, because God wants to give us more. God wants to give us more and bless us more. Like Abraham and Solomon and that. I mean, they were blessed beyond, beyond. Imagine, Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 12. That was the covenant. We, 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 we speak on the top heart, the bottom heart. I want to use you to bless the nations 
of the world, Oceanside. I want to open the floodgates. I want to put this money in. I want it to flow in and flow out. And I promise you, you will never outgive God because he will be no one's debtor. And you, God knows, maybe not what, uh, God knows what you want, but he also knows what you need. And you say, God, I've given this money and, and all of this, and I don't see any fruit of it. Well, maybe you don't need it yet. Maybe it's in the heavenly storehouse. When you really need it. When you really need it. I've been there saying, God, you know, and um, going through times and trying to be faithful, thinking I need it, and then something really happens. And all of a sudden, God opens those floodgates. He will not be your debtor. This is a relationship of love. And remember, I started with this, and I'll end with this. There's a shift from a cruise ship to a battleship. Now, I pray that you all get on board the battleship. I'd be very sad if you didn't. There's a shift. There's a shift from the major culture of in the four walls to the sending and healing of the world. I believe that in my heart. So if we can pray and we're going to worship, we're going to do that, praise the name. I want to pray, first of all, that there'll be no condemnation, Lord. I, I even standing here at church, it's so hard. These weeks have been very emotional for me. Studying James. Because I too don't feel qualified to stand up here outside of the grace of God. But God tells us this not to kick us down, but to spur us on, to remind us of the call of God. And if we can do one last, just last one thing. If we can turn to each other and just say, it's not about you. I had to break that solemn occasion. <laughs> not about you, princess. I'm sorry, I didn't know I was mic'd. I'm in big trouble. Let's praise the name of Jesus quickly. <laughs>